I remember, you know, late at Friday, let's say seven o'clock when I'm trying to go home, somebody would be calling me about some bureaucratic fight on terrorism between FBI, CIA, the new National Counterterrorism Center that had been created. And I'd be holding my phone away from my ear going, what is wrong with these children? Why can't they cooperate? And during my time there, I remember I was I was torn between this bureaucratic imperative that I had leading this organization, helping to lead this organization, that people expected me to be a defender of the CIA's position. I was torn between that, kind of a responsibility, and then my own thinking was, this is ridiculous. Can't we be grown-ups about this? And wouldn't it be better if we could come up with a win-win formulation? Carmen Medina is a former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence, a veteran of the intelligence community. She's also the author of Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. In part two, we discuss her perspective on power, the current state of the world, and her hope for the future. We also cover the role of curiosity and creativity in her work at the CIA, applying empathy to be heard by policy and decision makers in today's polarised political environment. And finally, we end with her life insights as she answers our quickfire questions. I hope you enjoy this refreshing and fun episode and learn from the kindness, reflective wisdom and optimism of Carmen Medina. Carmen, welcome back to part two of this interview. Hey, thanks. I, I, I think we still have a lot to talk about. So you mentioned there that in your role as an intelligence analyst, how important would you say the role of curiosity was in your in fulfilling that function at the CIA? Well, I think it's hugely important. And I, I think one of the hallmarks of my analytic career was that I was considered very creative and curiosity is a significant and important component mm-hmm. of creativity. And when I began to work on South Africa proper, not on Botswana, but on, on, on this much more complex society of South Africa, I immediately became interested in no, in, I, I was immediately curious about everything about South Africa. The music, the history of the Afrikaners. I remember there's a famous novel by an Afrikaner about life on the farm. I think the woman's name is Olive Schreiner or something like that. I was really interested in in reading that. And this was not necessarily typical, a typical profile for analysts Mm -hmm. at CIA. I think I'll not all, but some of the analysts, to my taste, defined their job much too narrowly so that they, you know, they, they were really interested about politics and power. Mm-hmm. So I think, just to make a comment about this, I think one of the most important consequences of my background and who I am as a person is that I did not have the same interest in power as some of the other analysts did. So they looked at, you know, well, who's got the power in South Africa? And, of course, the whites had the power in South Africa. That was inarguable. But I was interested in about much more than power. Would it be fair to then 
reference using that term hard power, soft power. Yes. That you were more driven by a more holistic view of the society Absolutely. and therefore the, the softer power, the culture, the culture. cultural influences of what was Absolutely. happening. Absolutely. Underneath the surface level. Yes, of that's what was visible. Absolutely most true. And so as a result, one of the experiences that I had was that I was. I picked up more quickly these little teeny weeny things that were going on in society. Mm, these nuanced That changes. to me were indicative of changing attitudes uh -huh. on the part of the blacks, on the part of the whites, you know, and I use those terms because those are the terms they used, mm. right? And, and often I would have a debate with a colleague. And of course the, the whole debate then in the 80s was can when will South Africa have black majority rule? Mm -hmm. And can it happen peacefully? And the position of those for whom power was important, classic sort of regime power or societal power, their view was it's gonna take a long time because the whites are very powerful. And, and when it does happen, it will happen violently because it will have to happen in a way where one power destroys another power, yep. where the blacks destroy the whites. And I, and a few others, believe that no, that it's gonna happen sooner and there's a chance it can happen relatively peacefully. It must have been really a joyful moment for you to watch that transition of power and Mandela coming out from Robin It Island. was, you know, I had left, I had stopped working on South Africa at the time in 1988. And I had, I, by that time I had become a manager so I was moving on to different types mm -hmm. of management roles. But yes, it was, it was very joyful to see that. I did, remember- Did you ever get to meet Mandela? No, sadly I did not get to meet Mandela, no. I've met people who knew Mandela, but I, I never got to meet him. Uh, yeah, that would have been an experience. So this, that standard operating procedure of how analysts work, that, that looking at power and it seems quite I don't want to call it one-dimensional because I'm sure it was a lot more than that. Right. But was that something that you, do you think that approach, your own personal curiosity-driven approach to being an analyst is what marked you out as being different and helped you uh, accelerate up the, let's say, the CIA career ladder? I think it did. I, I, I think that the fact that I was a different type of thinker from their norm, mm -hmm. I think eventually did help. And of course, the history of the CIA and of understanding the world in the last 30, 40 years is one where everyone has come to appreciate that there's a lot more going on than power relationships. It began during the 1979 Iran revolution mm -hmm. where people realized that no matter how powerful we thought the Shah was, that there were other dynamics in society mm -hmm. that could overwhelm him. And it continued through South Africa, uh, you know, the, the revolution in the Philippines that when Marcos was overthrown, the, of course, the end of the Cold War and how that ended where something very powerful was seen to be quite brittle. And that's kind of an operating concept that mm -hmm. I have, that power is often brittle and can shatter in ways that we don't, don't appreciate. So I think the CIA itself has become much more intelligent about how society works and understands that much better 
But in the 80s on South Africa, that was not the case. And I remember a colleague of mine, when I was asked to write a, when I was asked to write a paper about describing why I thought or how I thought South Africa could transition in a more peaceful way. And he responded to it, this colleague of mine, and traveled to South Africa and became persuaded. So he changed his view too, but he had to defend his earlier position. Mm -hmm. And so he actually wrote, I think to Bob Gates, who was you know the famous Secretary of Defense, yeah. Director of CIA, he actually said, why didn't I see it coming the way Carmen did? And he actually wrote, well, maybe it's because I'm not Puerto Rican. At the time, I just I've been was quite offended by that. I was slightly, <laughs> okay. anno- I was slightly annoyed by it. Yeah, right? Because what's it got to do with that? It's, it's yeah, my debating skills and yeah, my curiosity. Exactly, yeah. but but I mean, I've grown, you know, and he and I are still very close. I've grown to accept that that he was trying to grapple with something. You know, why did how why didn't he see the world how I the way I saw the world? Why mm-hmm. did we have these different lenses? And really. There is something about the f- my mm-hmm. being Puerto Rican that it that was, matters. Yeah, it was on to the sort of the very start of it. If you'd gone Puerto Rican, let's see, Puerto Rican moved school all the time, yes. went to the debating. <laughs> right, right. If you'd done a bit more, gone a little yeah. bit deeper, right, you'd right. expect a, a, a CIA man to do. But anyway, you talked a bit about the way the world is and the complexity of it. And we right. do live in an incredibly, more, probably more so than we did 50, even 50 years ago, a very interdependent world that's woven together by a web of causality. Right. That we, I mean, we had a guest on recently that was talking about the, and I should remember the guy's name that killed Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand. Oh, yes. Oh, Princep. Uh, uh, yeah. Cab- Cabrillo mm-hmm. Princet. I know. Yeah, but the young, misguided guy that, yeah. that took that shot. And he said everything can be traced back to that point. Yes. Everything in society now, you can play it forward. Right. Yeah. And everything can be traced back. And maybe it would be an interesting conversation to do as a round table at some point with you, Carmen, and get mm-hmm. a couple of other guests. Because yes. I think I don't I think that's a sort of a conversation probably worth having. Right. But in the world that we are in today and whether you sort of take it from there or take it from the post Second World War and the foreign policy of the 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 emergent victors of the Second World War, where we are today certainly is has been woven by the decisions right. and the policies that were taken back then. And these sort of bipartisan debates that sort of go on about why we are where we are today. Now that you're, have, you've left the CIA, you can sit back and maybe sort of reflect on it and have a sort of a, a more personal worldview than maybe taking the CIA's right. point of view on the world. Do you have a perspective going forward of where you think we're going as a, as a world, given the experience you've had? You've, you've seen the world from a from a, a rarefied perspective, are you optimistic about where we're going? Well, I am an optimist by nature. And I, one of the things you, that helps you be a better analyst is to understand your cognitive biases. But you know, there's a fundamental psychological bias, mm-hmm. like are you an optimist or a pessimist by nature? I'm an optimist. I also want to say that one of the most important experiences in my life was when I read in the early 90s the book Complexity by a journalist, Mitch Waldrup, I think mm. his name is. And, when I, and that book is about the complexity, the interconnectedness of all this causality. 
And when I read that book, it was like a huge aha moment because I realized that it explained my how I saw the world. I finally had like a scientific protocol theory that could justify the way I see the world because a lot of the time when I would have the arguments with my fellow analysts who believed in power they would go I couldn't I couldn't counter their argument I didn't have a a theory to counter their argument that power was everything but mm -hmm. when I read the book complexity I understood how little things can have huge impacts and how you have as you say this web of causality so where do I see the world going I I like to play with this thought experiment. I haven't played with it a lot, but I'll, I'll mention it here. I like, to, I like to imagine, what if the Romans had discovered electricity and the internet? <laughs> I just like to think about how would the world have evolved differently if the Romans had discovered electricity and the internet? Yeah. And where that takes me is this idea that we could have created a system of well-being, which is what an economy is, without all the environmental damage mm -hmm. that we have created, without destroying our world. So the Romans were the great road builders. They were the great engineers, yes. right? And Masters they of infrastructure. Right. They were the, and they figured out how to build a system of well-being, aqueducts and everything. The only way they knew how because they didn't, they, had, they didn't have electricity and they didn't have the internet. So I, I, I like to imagine, for me it's just a thought experiment, but it, it helps me think about how the world could be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that, that's one point that yeah. I'll make and I'll park that. I am, I think people are basically well-intentioned but feckless. Mm -hmm. When you, when you ask me what, how, what I think yeah. about people, I think most people, 80%, you know, don't want to consciously harm other people, right? That's what I mean. They don't want to consciously harm other people. But they're confused. They don't realize the harm that they're going to cause. And, or the ego gets involved and they go, or they don't. Or group dynamics. Or group dynamics. And they don't listen to their better selves. Mm -hmm. So I'm under no illusion that it will be easy to change the mindset of the planet, of, of the people on this planet. But I do think that's the road that we're on. Mm. We're on this road where we are more aware of our interconnectedness and I think more aware of how things that we thought were going to be harmless end up more dangerous, more destructive than we did. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll park that. So I think that 100 years from now, when we look back, that we will have a much more logical economy, nobody, uh, knowing what we know now, nobody would design the economy we have today. Mm -hmm. The Romans would n would go, darn, this was wrong. What we've what we led to. 
I'm sure I'm sure Adam Smith and John Maynard yeah. Keynes as well would yeah. <laughs> would sit, take a step back and go, guys, you know, that's that that th- these theories were written right for a different time in a different place. But it's you know unwinding. You know, it's like it's like renovating your house. It's much easier to build a new house than to renovate yeah. it. And that's why I think all these people are interested in going to Mars. Yeah, I was I'm literally about to say Elon Musk is yeah, probably e- with you on that Everybody yeah. is just taken with the idea of we're just going to have to start over mm-hmm. and we're going to go somewhere else and do it. Okay, fine, but that's not going to work in anybody's lifetime. And we have to figure out how to remodel and rebuild the house now. And it's going to be really hard and it's going to take a really long time and I don't have a lot of patience with the ideological positions that think that we can do it immediately. I I can't think of two I mean I, I can't think of too many revolutionary moments in the history of humankind where making change as quickly as possible turned out to be good. Mm-hmm. You're you're a, you're a voracious reader. Do you do you read a lot about history? I read a lot about history. I get frustrated with histories that are about power, mm-hmm. as so many are, right? But yes, I do read a lot about history. I, I try to read, I, I try to be, I'm weak on fiction, so I try to read more fiction. Yes. There's that, that term, I, I, I'm going to talk to you about teamwork. Before I do, there's that great term, I think the, you've described that the role of the, the CIA is about Removing uncertainty. Yeah, reducing, allow, reducing, reducing uncertainty. Reducing right. uncertainty. I don't think you can remove it. Yeah, reducing uncertainty to allow decisions to be made right. with more confidence. Mm-hmm. There's that term that's often used, talking truth to power. Yes. Truth is a very subjective, and we're living in a world where <laughs> that dreadful term, fake news, yes, of course. is everywhere. Right. How, if you were in the CIA right now, how would you deal with the delivery of truth to I don't like the term truth to power you don't because okay, I yeah. don't I, always, yeah. it assumes we can we we any any we in this case the CIA but any group can reliably know the truth mm-hmm. which I don't think so I think you can kind of work your way into truth evolve into truth over time if you have a healthy network, but I don't think any one group owns the truth. And then the other reason why I don't it's like too, that... It's too binary as well. Yes, it's too binary. Thank you. And the other reason why I don't like that phrase is because it implies that in the case of the CIA, when we speak, speak truth to power, power stops. Well, power doesn't stop. So now I'm using the power formulation. Mm-hmm, yeah. Power, particularly when it's elected and has a mandate in a democracy, uh, arguably has a higher justification for what it does in the CIA. Mm-hmm. And also, if, if you tell a policymaker, there's only uh, one chance in 20 you can bring peace to the Middle East, the policymaker will go, well, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to take that chance. Mm-hmm. And who are we to say that you shouldn't take that chance? So, you know, sometimes, sometimes, People make decisions to create truth, to create a reality. Mm-hmm. And the CIA and intelligence agencies don't, don't really know how to deal with that very well. So I, I feel, you know, you, you have to respect the cognitive style and the personality of the person that you're communicating with. You just have to respect that. Mm-hmm. 
And you can't get on your high horse and say, well, this person is not intellectual enough. They don't really understand what we have to say. That's just not useful uh, thinking. So you've got to figure out a way to make what you know, you know, so you're presenting someone else a broader context than the one they have in their head. And the most important thing is for them to hear you. So you've got to communicate in a way that they hear you. So mm-hmm. in the case of President Trump, for example, he sees the, well, he sees the world through a deal-making, economic, money prism. Clearly, that's how he sees the world. And there's some other things, I think, views that he has about American values that are important to him. As a professional, it just serves no purpose to fight that. Mm-hmm. I know not everyone's going to agree with me, but as I see it, it serves no purpose to fight that. And you've got to, un- you've got to learn to communicate in a, in, within a framework that he will comprehend and find to be legitimate. And this is true of any policymaker. I mean, it just sounds commonsensical that you use what our, one of our previous guests, Michael Ventura, calls applied empathy. That's fantastic. I would agree completely. You must, you know, I mean, so my kind of definition of empathy is that I applied it to my own career is that when I describe another person's perspective or position, am I describing it using the words they would use? Would Mm -hmm. they recognize my description? So when people criticize President Trump, would he... Does he agree with how we are characterizing his positions? Well, the fact of the matter is, no, he does not. Mm -hmm. He has a different vocabulary to describe what he believes in. And if we can't understand that vocabulary, then we're not empathizing. Yeah. Oh, we could talk for hours on this. I'm very conscious of time, but uh, there's one thing that I do want to ask you about, which is the importance of teamwork. And Mm. I'm... We we had a, we have a lot of amazing cultural events here at Neuhaus, and last year I think it was, they did the screening of the pilot for Looming Tower, mm. an amazing series and 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 book, and Al Alif Sufan, who was the FBI mm-hmm. agent that was right. depicted in the Looming Tower, was here talking about that experience. Mm. Were you aware at that time? Obviously, you weren't around there in two thousand and one when this whole these issues were emerging. But were you conscious? of the lack of teamwork between the FBI and the CIA during your tenure? Oh, yeah, I was. I was very aware of the bureaucratic power dynamics that affected the relationship between the CIA and and FBI. And I was very aware that the CIA was very protective of its what it considered its turf. Mm -hmm. And you were in a position at that time and that you were deputy director of not quite not quite so okay i but but is it was it something that was part of the conversation yes you were there must have been because there must be talking about the evolution of ci becoming more intelligent in the way that it does intelligence right right. that must have been quite a key 
discussion yes. around the, the corridors of... Yes. I don't want to use the corridors of power at CIA. Right. Around the corridors of the CIA, around how do we embrace other intelligence services. Yes. So I was in, on the seventh floor when the DNI legislation was passed, Director of National Intelligence. And I, I remember I would... You know, late at Friday, let's say seven o'clock when I'm trying to go home, somebody would be calling me about some bureaucratic fight on terrorism between FBI, CIA, the new National Counterterrorism Center that had been created. And I'd be holding my phone away from my ear going, what is wrong with these children? Why can't they cooperate? And during my time there, I remember I was I was torn between this bureaucratic imperative that I had leading this organization, helping to lead this organization, that people expected me to be a defender of the CIA's position. I was torn between that, kind of a responsibility, and then my own thinking was, this is ridiculous. Can't we be grown-ups about this? Yeah. And wouldn't it be better if we could come up with a win-win formulation? And I know that people viewed me as a leader as a bit naive on these issues. I, someone told me once, you're not hard enough as a leader. Hmm. And, and that was a hard thing when someone said, it was a hard thing when it's someone said that to me. It's another very sort of traditional male power dynamic, Yes, and, I, and then I remember kind of how I reconciled it with, well, you know, I'm not trying to be hard in that way that this person thinks. So I'm, gonna, I'm okay with this. You know, thumbs up. That, mm -hmm. that was my goal, so we're good. But, yeah. Okay, well, let's get to the quick of our questions. Okay. What principles do you stand by? I asked my friend this morning that question because you can think of what your principles are, but I asked her, what principles do you associate with me? And the first thing she said is fun. And I like that because that was in my yeah. list, fun. I stand for fun. When I'm working well with my team, I always say, wouldn't it be fun if mm -hmm. we could do this? So I love fun. I stand for fun. I stand for kindness. And there's a big difference between being kind and being nice. Being nice is you're always just trying to make that person feel good. Being kind is really you're trying that per you're trying to help that person be good, become good, do good, right? Which may occasionally require tough love. And then the third uh, thing I would stand for is reflection, thinking. Let us think through things. Let's reflect. And I think I like the word reflection better than thinking because reflection. The act of reflection can get you to understand or to cogitate on second and third order consequences of things, mm -hmm. right? An engineer thinks, but reflection is, I think, a much deeper activity. Ah. So I don't know if those are principles, but those are things I stand for. They're, they're, they're great. I, I do love the, your perspective on fun. One of the things that adults mm -hmm. lose is our playfulness and yeah. it's it's a tragedy, really. And I think that's tied completely to your curiosity mm -hmm. as well. Yes. So. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I go to Twitter a lot. I have a, I follow a varied group of, of people. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I believe I am a generous follower. I, I, I try to follow back. And almost always the really unusual or new piece of thinking is presented to me by Twitter. I've never heard anyone say that. That's brilliant. And I I have a particular newsletter that I like, The Browser. I don't know if other people look at The Browser, but a very eclectic curator of information. Right, we'll put that one in the show notes. Okay, that's great. What is one problem that's worth solving? Inequality of opportunity. So I think, you know, it's great to have a level playing field, but there's something about human nature where even with a level playing field, we can't all take the same advantage of it. And, you know, how can we address that? Yeah, that's, that's a great one. And we wholeheartedly agree. If you could return to one night, mm. one day in history, where, when, and with who? That one took up a lot of my thinking. And I, my favorite period of history is between World War I and World War II. So I tried to think of something in particular during that time. Because I think a lot of, it's that period after World War I, after the assassination of the Archduke, where everything that we're living with now, I think, was completely put into train. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't think of a particular day, so I went back to South Africa. And what I didn't know at the time was that in the late 80s, Nelson Mandela began to meet with South African leaders, where the South African leaders were figuring out Mm -hmm. that they were going to have to strike a bargain. And I actually met someone once who was in one of those meetings. So I would like to be, have been a fly on the wall in the first meeting between not Nelson Mandela and the previous leader, Bota, and uh-huh. I know they yeah. met, but yeah. the guy who realized, who figured out how to make the compromise, yeah. which was de Klerk. So F.W. de Klerk. F.W., yeah. that meet, those first meetings between Mandela and de Klerk, I would love to have sat in those. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Where do you go when you need space to think? I like to walk in nature, so I like woods. I do not have buds in my ear I don't listen to a book or anything. I just take a two or three mile walk in nature. Mm-hmm. In Washington? In Washington, there's several parks. There's one not too far. I have to drive to get to this park. But once I'm in the park, I can go miles in, in woodlands. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. I, when I go running, I need to leave the headphones behind. Yes, good. And just let my brain. Right run free is Mm -hmm. the time when ideas come to you. Exactly. What's your perspective on failure? We should expect it, expect failure. We should, in fact, we should demand failure. So a lot of people now in organizations, it's very, you know, trendy to say, oh, you know, we welcome failure, we embrace failure. But I think we should demand failure. I think you should have as a evaluation requirement of your staff or whoever, the idea that they have to write about or tell you about the failure that they're most proud of that year. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that when I say demand it, I think we should demand it. Yeah, it's a good idea. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Most recently, in a very concrete way, Steve Blank, 
who has that show, Entrepreneurs Are Everywhere. Mm -hmm. He interviewed me two or three years ago. He asked me about my family background. He, but he started by saying, Carmen, I bet you, what, what was your background like? Was it yeah. very stable? And I said, oh no, all contraire, fought a lot, everything yeah. I've told you about. And he goes, aha, yeah. I knew it. He said, he told me that most of the people that he interviews give an answer like mine, that I had a very chaotic childhood. And his theory is that when you have a chaotic childhood, it really hones your emotional intelligence, your emotional and social intelligence. You really learn to read people, figure out how to prevent problems, right? And so when you develop emotional intelligence like that, that makes you a good entrepreneur. That correlates yeah. to more success as an entrepreneur. So that totally led to myself to reevaluate my own, the way I thought about my life, that this chaotic childhood was, you know, had been problematic, but now I realize that, you know, I accept what he says, that it was a blessing, that it helped me become just more emotionally intelligent. No, I think it's going back to what we said as well, the, that constant change prepares you for ambiguity. It's what one of our other guests, Beth Comstock, mm -hmm. said is today we have to be comfortable in ambiguity. Absolutely. And I think if you are that, uh, aligned with that, yes. it, uh, by having to move so many schools and have that right. disruption does force you to develop an emotional intelligence. Right, right. And, and I would just say the other thing that leads me to reevaluate myself more consistently is when I have a conversation with people from another generation. Mm -hmm. And most recently, I've had my first serious conversation with Generation Z, mm -hmm. and I was just blown away by the talk. <laughs> the, the, the way they saw the world and the way I did, I just thought. So I was eager to maneuver myself to a place where I could see it the way they did. Yeah, that would be, we interviewed a 12-year-old when we were in Barcelona, one wow. of our guests' sons, we, we haven't put it out because obviously he's maybe too young and right. he'll be able to make a decision himself when he's 16, we maybe put it out then. But it was amazing. I would, I'd love to do conversations with children. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's a different different podcast. The impossible question. if What advice would you give to someone who's maybe just about to graduate study, has a dream to go into, let's say, let's be specific here, go into the CIA mm. today but it's being told, ah, forget it, that's impossible. What would your advice be to them? Uh, you can take it from the general or the specific. Yeah, I'd rather do it from the, the general. The general. Yeah. I think when, when people tell you that something is impossible or when you yourself decide that something is impossible or you're not getting to where you need to be, mm -hmm. I think it's important for you for, for you to have the attitude, it's, it's my fault that it's impossible. It's not somebody else's fault that it's impossible. It's my fault that it's impossible. And so what do I need to do to make it possible? Because if your mindset is, oh, it's impossible because of external circumstances, there's no place for you to begin, mm -hmm. but you've got to begin in this place where the reason why it's impossible is me. And what do I need to do to make it possible? Mm -hmm. And I, I know that sounds a little bit vague, but 
you know, like if you're trying to advance a, a new idea in an organization and you don't get anywhere and you say, oh, these people are stupid. They're not listening to me. You've got it all wrong. If you're the smart one, it's your responsibility yeah. to make sure there's a productive conversation. It's your fault if there isn't. So there is something you can do to make it possible, and you've got to examine that. Great summation. What book would you like us to offer listeners that come up with the best <coughs> comments in the comment section? I, the book that has made the most impact on me recently is Two Cheers for Anarchy. Hmm. Or great, maybe it's Two title. Cheers for Anarchism, but it's one of those. By James C. Scott, who is a combination anthropologist and political scientist at Yale. I think he's a professor emeritus. And the book, he wrote the book because all his career, so it's about seven years old, he had uh, been writing about political systems and governance, but always found himself attracted to anarchy and found that anarchy explained the world better mm -hmm. than so much of the other talk, like talk about power. And I love the book. I, it, it is a series of, of slightly connected essays, but it tells you a lot about the web of causality how societies really work, the slight fecklessness of people, but the greater fecklessness of power. Wow, that sounds like a Christmas read. I loved it. Yeah. I, I, I just adored it. Okay, that's great. Okay, who should we interview next? You know, I, I thought about that, and one person I thought about was my high school creative writing teacher. She's 80 now. But she was a very successful school administrator, very successful. I mean, you know, superintendent of schools. Her name is Bonnie Leslie. I don't know that right. she would ever come to New York, but- Well, we uh, could come to Washington. Oh no, don't oh, tell she's, me she's in Texas. She's in Texas, so. <laughs> right, <a> road trip. <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, uh, I think that's slightly impractical. If we did that, you'd have to come. Yeah, oh, I would. Yeah, yeah. But she's a fascinating, interesting person, and I learned a lot from her. Another is a colleague of mine at CIA, Don Burke, who was part of the a very important person in uh, helping advance the CIA in, in the use of the internet, for example. Mm. And I, I think has a very interesting perspective on the world. Cool, well let's maybe start with Don and then we can maybe- And I'll persuade. give you one last person. Oh, right. It's a friend, okay. a young friend of mine, Jack Conroy. He's not, not a known person in the world. But he's working as a, he's studying to become a marine biologist. He's taking a lot of trips to Antarctica. And I just, you know, he's, he's one of those people that have that totally different perspective that I, enjoy, I really enjoy talking to him. Okay, well, we'll follow up with you on all three of those. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Best recent Netflix or Amazon series? I don't watch a lot of TV, which is, I know is a weakness, but the one that I liked a lot was Babylon Berlin, about the story of the Weimar Republic. I'll it's a that. fantastic German production, and uh, that's my third language, German, and I am fascinated by this account of how a sane society became insane, and so I, I really recommend it. Well, that's a good one. Okay. Your go-to karaoke song? Boogie Oogie Oogie by Taste of Honey. 
old song from the disco period. Okay, right. Look forward to listening to that one. I think that's us covered, but just thank you just now for your time and your wisdom, but also acknowledge you for your refreshing perspective on the world. Well, and your refreshing perspective on the concepts that we've covered, particularly power, for your considered reflection and clearly your empathy. Thank you very much. I, I'm still thinking about a hard decision I've made. I feel like it's it's the decision that I'm in now, which is you know, my mom is, is, is needs a lot of help and a lot of care, and, and I just keep grappling with, you know, what my responsibility is. How much should I be doing? And this this tension between taking care of the other mm-hmm. and taking care of yourself. That's true. I'm in exactly the same place as you at the moment. It's extremely difficult. And I, I, you know, it's one of, you know, I said earlier that, you know, we should not consciously harm other people. And so that's, it's a constant struggle for me. Are you familiar with, you talked about a blog that you recommended. Are you familiar with the blog of Tim Urban? No, I, th- I think it, I know that name. Wait But Why. Oh, wait, you should but check why? out okay. one of his posts there called The Tail End. Okay. Wait, it's, but why? And Tim the Tail End. We'll send okay. you the link to it. Go, please really, do. And I think you please really do. enjoy. He's Good. A, some of his blog posts are 20,000, 30,000 words. Oh, wow. They're, they're quite exceptional. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Are you familiar with, with, you made me think of long blog posts, the the uh, oddly, oddly named State Star Codex? No. It's a professor somewhere. I think he's mostly, an, I'll send you the link, mostly an economics professor. Okay. But he just has these long blog posts where he's often talking about the web of causality. All oh, right. Okay. Then. So one that he, I found was really fun that he did was he was trying to understand why so many Hungarian Jews have won Nobel Prize physics, <laughs> uh, Nobel Prizes in physics. Mm-hmm. And it is true that it's just a kind of way out of proportion. And is is it just a random cluster or is what happened mm. there, right? And it's just really interesting. It's really interesting when you get into the whole causality and correlation oh, sort of de- absolutely. debate and yeah. discussion. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.